back to another episode of Sweet Script Stories. I'm Eric Ruboth. And I'm Tim Dietrich. And today we want to talk about anti-patterns. So Tim, this was your suggestion. You mentioned you have maybe your own definition of what that means. So I'm going to kick it to you right away and let you define anti-patterns for us. So yeah, I, I guess the way I would describe an anti-pattern is I would describe it as the opposite of a best practice. <laughs> In other words, it's uh, how not to do something, uh, something to avoid and, uh, as best you can. When, and you know, we're talking specifically about um, software development here. Um, so that's how I would kind of sum up what an anti-pattern is. I know that's not the official definition if there is one, but um, it's one of those things where you know it when you see it. <laughs> okay, yeah. And you wish you didn't. <laughs> uh, it's a, uh, the best practice is to avoid these things. These are red flags. They are, yeah, traps to be avoided at all costs. Right. Um, yeah, there was recently a, f a free code camp just publishes a ton of great software development material lately um, on their blog. And they happened to publish one about anti-patterns recently, uh, what they are, and some very, very common ones, kind of language agnostic ones that, that definitely apply in SweetScript as well as anywhere else. Um, so I'll link to that in the show notes and probably let that be my definition of them as well. Um, did you have, like, did something happen? Did you see something like this recently? What sort of prompted this, uh, this conversation? Yeah. So there was, I was working on a project, um, where I wrote a ton of code. Uh, it's a NetSuite project. So it was a bunch of sweet script stuff. And I, you know, it, it, the requirements shifted. I'm being polite here. <laughs> um, you know, late in the project and I had written a bunch of code that I didn't want to lose. Um, and so I basically committed the, what I, I think is referred to as the dead code anti-pattern. I'm sorry, that's not, that's not the right one. The boat anchor anti-pattern, which is okay. uh, where you leave code that you don't need in the code base, um, uh, you yeah. know, like, cause you're going to need it someday. And you know, oh, that's, that's the worst. And I, 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 so I sat there, I commented it out. I did everything I could to avoid removing it. And um, because, you know, I know I'm going to need it someday in another project. Like, how did I do that again? Um, and I won't be able to find it, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, and it's not that never I would find, find it anyway. You'll never well, that's, find it. <laughs> that's the irony of it, right? Like, even if I really did officially, like, if I left it in there, it's a it's a restlet. If I left the code in there, I'm not going to even remember where it was. I'm not going to find it. So it's just code that's floating around in there. That whether it's future me or some other developer that like someday looking at that restlet, you're going to see this huge block of code commented out. I don't remember whether I had a comment on top of it. You know, like keep this for the future, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, but regardless, they're going to be like, what what is this? Like, why is this? You know massive piece of the of the restless like you know what's the story 
There's 500 um, lines of commented code here. And there probably is too. It's probably not an exaggeration. Oh, so no. um, yeah. So, uh, and I've done that before. I'm using this as an example, but I recognized that I was doing it. I'm like, I wonder if that is an anti-pattern that's actually got a name. And you know, again, they refer to it as a boat anchor. I should, there's other, <laughs> probably not so nice ways of describing it. Um, but it's one that I know I'm guilty of. I've done it in the past in NetSuite and beyond. Um, so the question then becomes, okay, great. Uh, I'm sure that we've all run into that before. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm not alone. Obviously I'm not if other people have- It has a name. An actual so. name, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I started to wonder, like, you know, how should I solve that problem? And there's two ideas that I came up with that I, so that I can feel better about taking that huge chunk of code and just mm -hmm. basically cutting it out. Um, one is to take the code and create a folder of snippets, you know, whether it's sweet script snippets or PHP snippets, whatever, you know, th right. stick it somewhere so that in the future, when you have that, I know I did this before, where is it? What did I do? You've got a single place to go to to find it. Mm -hmm. um, I used to do that a lot. Um, and the other, this might sound a little strange, but the other way to do it, I think, is uh, to create what I would refer to as almost like a code journal, which is something else that I used to do, where, you know, it's not every day, but whenever you're, you're working on something and you write something interesting, you know, take that block of code and, and put it somewhere, um, mm -hmm. whether it's just individual files or, you know, an app that lets you create a journal, whatever. Um, and when I was much younger, I used to do that when I was doing a lot of work in the cold fusion space, I would have these really interesting, right. helpful snippets of code that I could easily find, pull into a project, you know, clean up and, you know, there you go. So. Yeah. Have you run into that one before? And oh yes. So how do oh, how yes. do you do it? How do you deal with that one? I have met many developers who seem to love to leave dead code in in you know I've I reviewed I reviewed I didn't work on it but I reviewed a sweet app recently that had like whole entire files of dead code like whole modules were just completely unused for the whole project. Um, and uh, like I was reviewing this, it's a very large suite app. And so I was reviewing it and I came across this one module. There's probably, oh gosh, at least a hundred thousand lines of code in the whole suite app. And then probably 25, 30 modules. And so I came across this one dead module. Um, so I emailed the developer and I said, hey, I noticed, you know, this this module, this whole module is unused. It's dead. Uh, are there any others? <laughs> and he responded with this list of like 12 other modules that are completely unused in the project because they've since refactored or mm -hmm. uh, what, you know, requirements changed, whatever it was. <laughs> like, oh, my God, half of this project is dead code. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've run into this. Um how do I deal with it? Uh, well, I delete the dead code. It's <laughs> the short, well, how do you, snide how, answer. Um, how do you stop yourself though from from committing the the crime of this? Again, yeah, we'll I was to just about to get to that. So, what do I do when it's when it's my code? Yeah, and 
you know, I just decide something's, you know, I'm going to go a different way or requirements change or whatever it might be. Um, one, I heavily rely on branching in my source control. So if I really, it, it's, it's extremely rare that I keep, that I keep the code at all. It's, it's like extremely rare. I let the source control repository uh, keep my past versions. So if there's dead code in there and I somehow by random chance need to recover it, I'm, I'm going to go back to the branch and, you know, walk back the commit history and find out where I deleted the dead code that I yeah. mysteriously need again. Now. Um, if this has never happened to me in my entire career so far, but if um, I, for some reason, like I, I built something and then, yeah, the requirements change or they didn't want it anymore or whatever it might be. If I was like, wow, this is still really, I can see how this would be useful in the future or like I, I can see maybe reusing this later or something like that. If I did want to keep it, uh, I would make a separate repository that is literally... I would make a repository for your code journal mm -hmm. um, and just start committing there. I have some of these already. Um, they, where I keep examples of SweetScript and some of them are private, some of them are public. None of them have come from something I built in a project that then never got used. Um, They've all been intentionally, you know, created examples, but that's where I would put something like that. Um, I would have a repository for your code journal, uh, for interesting stuff, for snippets. And most, I think GitHub, Bitbucket and GitLab, you know, the major um, Git hosts all have some kind of global snippet feature where you can keep track of that sort of stuff. And WebStorm also has it. WebStorm has a snippets feature that's global, like uh, agnostic of the project you're working on. You can keep snippets handy. Um, so I would use any of those, but I would immediately take it out of the project. Yeah. I am very big on my code and, and my projects having a very minimal uh, cognitive load. That's how I refer to it and I have seen it referred to in the past. So anything that is detracting from what does this code do and why does it do it uh, is is overhead that should not be there. So any dead code needs needs to go away because it's just clutter. It's yeah. just distraction, especially if it's like massive swaths of you know hundreds of lines. Oh, oh, right. It hurts my yeah. heart just talking about it. Yeah, it's hard enough sometimes to follow along with what someone else has done, but then you know to stumble upon like a huge block of code that is commented out or whatever, you know, and um, it, it's it's another distraction that you don't need, right? And it makes you wonder, you know, like what happened here? It's like <laughs> evidence at the scene of a potential crime or something, <laughs> trying to figure out, yeah. you know, what happened. And then all it says at the top is like keep or save for future You're like well yeah well when what like what's the trigger that this is gonna come back into play mysteriously <laughs> yeah what am i supposed to do with this so yeah and if, <laughs> if you you know or the original developer is no longer in the picture and you know has moved on uh then what <laughs> what are you supposed to do with it 
Well, and that brings us to, again, like that one, I think people refer to as boat anchoring, which is where there's code that's just sort of left behind. No one really, like it's commented out, clearly not being used. But then there's this other concept of dead code, which is code that's in the solution. No one really understands what it does, why it's there. Um, and the original developer is gone, right? Yeah. So there's nobody to ask about it. Mm -hmm. um, that one's a little bit scarier to me. And I have come across that not in in NetSuite, but in um, in other technologies, you know, where you come upon that and be like, what is this? It's not documented. It's not clear what it is. No one on the team mm -hmm. understands it. Yeah. I... I definitely would not call that dead code. Dead code to me is is stuff that is is it's code that's there but is not actively impacting the project or the solution at all. Okay. So big blocks of commented code or even even stuff like empty else branches. Uh, mm -hmm. That's oh man, I see that way too often too. Right. That's dead code. It's like or conditionals that you know paths of a condition that cannot be reached that are unreachable by how the system works right. um it's those sorts another, of things are dead code to me yeah um, the, right the conditionals that'll never be true are yes. just almost like whether the developer intended it or not it's just another way to comment on a block of code exactly you know if one does not equal one then okay it's basically unreachable code um, yeah but for whatever reason it's it's unreachable Right, and you don't know whether it's a bug or if it was an intentional decision that the developer made, again, to hold on to that block of code. Yeah, I so I, I wouldn't call what you brought up dead code. It's certainly a code smell, mm -hmm. and I am certainly guilty of being that person before. Uh, yeah. But I don't. I don't have a name for it. I don't know what the name for that is. But it's yeah. it's that dark corner of the application that nobody wants the responsibility to maintain anymore. Yeah, and I don't know that there is an easy solution to that. I mean, if you're not sure if the code's being used, you know, what you can do is add some code to log the calls to it. You know, like. <laughs> You know, and give yourself like a put something on your calendar and say, hey, look in the log. And if we haven't seen this reference, you know, six months from now, we're just going to go in and we'll start by commenting out the code, <laughs> which is, you know, you're committing a different crime. <laughs> yeah, did anything break? And then, you know, add another, you know, event on your calendar 30 days from now. If nobody's complained, then we'll just delete it <laughs> and hope for the best. Boy, if it's really that obscure, I. Oh, yeah. I don't even know how you get there in the first place. But I don't know either. But I have seen it. Not again, not necessarily in the sweet script space. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. you just gradually chip out, chip away at it, and hope that someday when it's gone, you know, it'll be the the day you're on vacation. <laughs> so yeah. it'll be very clear why that code was there. Nobody still understands it, <laughs> but it's clear that there was a dependency on yeah. it. Yeah. So to me, that's that's. Uh... A major, especially if it's so, if it's a portion or the majority of a really important feature of whatever the project is, solutions, that's a major uh, technical debt that you have that you need to overcome. Um, yeah. 
and personally, if I were running that project or that team, I would um, track that as a high priority technical debt and use, um, I would find time in the project to swarm that um, and make sure that the, the team has, uh, like, that's all they focus on. Every, and everyone, it's everyone's job to pick that apart and replace it. Um, it's like the only priority. It's all you do. And everybody's job is to pick it apart and understand it, replace it, what it like decide what to do about it. Uh, and shine a very bright light in that dark corner. Well, and I think, you know, you said you're not sure how you get to that point. I think one of the ways that you end up with code, and, and again, I, we, uh, the name, I guess, is going to be tricky, but whatever we're going to call that code that's that's in the dark corner that no one wants to, like, you know, we just pretend it's not there. Well, mm -hmm. we can look at that. So I think the way you get there is from another anti-pattern, and that's the whole spaghetti code. Uh, anti-pattern sure. yeah, right? sure. there's, there's no apparent structure to mm -hmm. the overall you know solution just like straight procedural code yeah I, and um i see that i think again i've seen it in in non-netsuite projects as well but i do see it um oh yeah in, in sweet script and i have For also sure. seen it in um in database designs where you look at you know the structure of the database and it's not clear how anything's related you know whether it's because of the naming which is a whole other topic but um you know there's no real constraints on the database i don't want to turn this into a database um design episode but it's just you can it just, but just know i will have nothing to contribute <laughs> You know, I mean, if you could see a diagram of the database, it, you know, would look like a Jackson Pollock painting where it's just like somebody <laughs> just threw paint on some, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not knocking his, you know, his art. I think it's actually kind of interesting, but, you know, it's not what I want to see when I'm looking at a database. Right. For yeah. sure. <laughs> great in an art museum, but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so anyway, I think that's how you end up with code that no one knows why it's there nobody yeah. knows if it's being used um you know it, it just there was a bigger i'll call it a crime again a bigger crime committed early on that led to the point now that you've now got this code that you know nobody wants to deal with yeah um so i, I was maybe being hyperbolic when i said i don't know how you, you get there there are several ways to get there yeah that's certainly one of them. Also, just the teams who are just chronically pushing forward. Um, there's, they're only ever building new stuff. They're never going back uh, over and refactoring and you know reducing technical debt. They're just working at breakneck pace to move forward, forward, forward bill 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 um that's also a very good way to build up a mountain of technical debt including these very dark corners right it's the get it done at all cost as quickly mm -hmm. as possible um 
it's that sort of mentality that I think leads to not only writing code that's unstructured, which is the spaghetti code problem, but then it sort of it's then easy for the whatever we want to call it the dark code <laughs> that you know is in the corner. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of ways to get there, but so. I think right there, I kind of said what I think the solution to the spaghetti code is, and that is you really need to put some thought into the overall design, design. of your solution, right? Mm -hmm. It's software design architecture. It's do that before you write a line of code. Think this through a little bit. You know, you wouldn't, if you're having a house built, you wouldn't have the you know general contractor show up and just start nailing stuff and pouring concrete. Like you need that plan. Um, yeah. And granted, you know, it has to, you have to be somewhat flexible with regards to that, but just, you need some kind of a plan and without it, you're going to end up with a mess. So, yeah, and you, if you, need, can... uh, you need some guideposts. You can't, I mean, it's, it's foolish to try and design, depending on the size of the project, it's pretty foolish to try to design the whole thing up front, yeah. but if if we're going with the building the house analogy, you can at least know what rooms you need and sort of where they are and how they fit together. <laughs> or or what kind of a building you're building. Is it a house or is it an office yeah. building? Yeah, a skyscraper? Could, <laughs> yep, we could, we could probably start there, yep. <laughs> yeah. So if you've inherited that mess, if it's too mm -hmm. late, I'm talking about now back to the spaghetti code concept yeah. where it's like a, a, you know, an application or a solution that, mm -hmm clearly has no structure to it at all. Mm -hmm. What do you do in a case like that where it's it's too late and now it's dumped on you? You know, you didn't necessarily write necessarily write it, but it's now your responsibility to clean up the mess. What what do you do? What would you do or recommend? Great question that highly depends on the situation, I guess. I mean, it's uh, it's very rare in this space that someone like hires you to clean up code right um right yeah it's not part of the scope but it quickly becomes yeah most teams are not good at explaining the business value of refactoring mm -hmm. um so that i mean that's where i would start i would be I, I'm i'm assuming that this is for like for a client um it's different if it's your say like your own accounts code base or like your own suite app perhaps um again i think that's it. so if it is your own sort of code base uh you know your own internal code base then that is hopefully something you are tracking and and raising to the project management or whatever as massive risky technical debt mm -hmm. um, that like is drastically increasing the maintenance efforts of this application or whatever it is it's it's drastically increasing the costs of maintaining this this thing and so i, I mean that that would be first is i'd be trying to um, assess and understand the value of refactoring it um, and barring that, if I'm, you know, if I'm not in that position, if I'm not in that advisory position, say I'm like a junior developer who just got hired, um, I might not know enough to do that. 
at that stage of my career, but I think I would be every time you touch a piece of code is a chance to refactor it. And so it would be a long, lengthy, drawn out process of every time I get like a bug fix to make or something like that, I'm going to refactor that the immediate area of that code. Yeah. Um, and it's and and slowly build up, just go at it very slowly, one bite at a time. Um, but again, that to me, that's something that that's a major architectural technical debt that needs mm -hmm. to be escalated as I would say a pretty high priority. Um, but it's not always your decision as a developer what what's a high priority. Yep, I I did that too. I think. Um... What's interesting about technical debt is when you do raise it as a potential issue, you know, that someday this is going to burn us. <laughs> um, so we should get a jump on it. You know, that's, that often falls on deaf ears. However, what I have seen too, is that when you, when there's a, a, an enhancement or some feature request that's made that is being blocked because of the technical debt, in other words, the debt is now due, but that's usually when the people that are that can make the decision about whether or not it's time to deal with it will say, yes, clean it up. If it's something they want bad enough, then the, I think they're willing to invest the time and resources into, you know, sort of untangling that mess, digging out from the debt. Um, and that's just, you know, experience I've run into several times with clients and you know, whether it's code that, you know, some other developer wrote or even my own, you know, where I knew that, it, you know, I need to come back and clean this up someday, um, you know, mm -hmm. so anyway. Yeah, for whether you like it or not, as a developer for business applications, uh, your code is not art, your code is business. And so you need to connect any sort of changes, improvements, whatever, to business value um or it's it's pointless um yeah yep save your art for your hobby code <laughs> so we've been through what i had referred to as boat anchors and I, I agree with you i think we really should call that dead code and then there was what i was referring to dead code which i think we refer to now as sort of dark code the code that <laughs> nobody understands it is being used you think at least <laughs> that uh -huh. nobody nobody wants to touch and then we've talked about now spaghetti code so there's three um yeah what's one of your uh you know type patterns that you've either seen or you know they're like oh man i'll never forget this <laughs> yeah um i have one uh, look sort of a couple that are related to sort of the first thing that you mentioned and then and source control, I guess, in general. Mm -hmm. I remember starting out when I first got into um, SweetScript. I, the team I was on had no, they had source control. Um, basically, every, every client's code, like all the code they had ever written for every client was in one single subversion repository and all of it was on the trunk. So like the main branch. So 
I mean, basically all that is at that point is an offline backup. It's not, or a, an offsite backup rather. It's not a, it's not source control. It's not history um, necessarily. And so, but they recognized that, boy, they sure needed ways to roll back and access previous versions of code and, and keep track of changes. So, and I, this is not the only place I've seen this. I'm not, so I'm not specifically throwing them under the bus. I've seen this several times in the sweet script space where people do source control by file name and they will make multiple copies in order to keep the version history of their source files. They will make multiple copies of the file and slightly rename it like V1, V2, V3, or use a date, like a timestamp uh, in the file name to differentiate these, these multiple copies. Please don't do that. <laughs> it is impossible to know which one is the right version. You can maybe guess that it's the most recent one, but that's not always true. Um, don't do that. Use source control. <laughs> Use source <laughs> control for what it is intended to do and best at, uh, and that is keeping the versions, the version history of your files for you in a database off-site that anyone can access from anywhere. Uh, don't try to build your own. <laughs> please i am not going to comment on this one at all <laughs> i i called you out didn't i you do that i do i do i did <laughs> i mean you know I, I we've had conversations about that both i think as part of the podcast and offline about you know i'm gradually uh trying to discipline myself to use git more than i had <laughs> been um you know, I would selectively use it and I still do, you know, it's a hard habit to break. It's easy to just say, especially when you're a solo developer and you're like, you know, who else is going to see this? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I, I recognize that it is a problem and I don't know what we call that anti-pattern. Stupidity. Because yeah, <laughs> wow. sum it up real short. I, I don't know. What no, would you call I, it? I don't know that it that it has a name. It's just it's just like understand the tools of like the mechanics of distributed software development mm -hmm. um, and the tools you have available to facilitate that. Uh, you don't have to do it on your own. These are problems that have been solved. Um, yeah. So just getting smarter, getting better about source control, which is like maybe the most important foundational like uh, software tool that any developer can learn. Just the like the basics of, of what source control is, why you do it, and how you do it. Uh, boy, that will serve you well anywhere, in any career, like in any, you know, software career path let alone sweet script yeah i do agree with you there you know i joke about the fact that i don't use git for everything and i've been really bad about that it's the irony is that i used to be a visual source safe uh enthusiast guru nut yeah <laughs> um you know 
way back when I was doing a lot of cold fusion work, that that was my thing, you know, and I had it down to a science and, you know, I was working primarily at that point with other developers in a team, whether it was, you know, you were physically in the same place or not, mm-hmm. didn't really matter. Um, but uh, yeah, so I understood the importance of it. I saw the value of it. And so it just got easy over the years to just sort of let that slide. And um, yeah. and there have been times where I've regretted it. I mean, you're absolutely right in that, you know, I've got a pretty good way of naming the files that I have. Um, when I'm doing my homemade source control, <laughs> oh. uh, whatever, we'll have to give it a name someday. But uh, regardless, like you, you know, you had that comment where the most recent version of the file might not be the correct one. And I absolutely agree with you, you know, and then you start doing the squirrely thing where you stick something on the end, like working copy or uh, uh, yeah. experimental or <laughs> V1, V2, you know, like, okay, it really doesn't help me. Um, no. So, yeah. So I said I wouldn't comment on that one. But I did. At least. Well, thank you for joining in. I fessed up, right? Yes. Thank you for confessing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You're not alone. You're not alone. Like I mentioned, but. Yep. I think you you mentioned source control as a tool that we should all use, and that's a good segue into the uh, an anti-pattern called the Golden Hammer, Um, and I'm going to paraphrase. Abraham Maslow, basically, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem begins to look like a nail. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly what he said, but it's pretty close. And I think that's how most people recognize it. Um, I also think that, that this happens when your favorite tool is a hammer. You might have this awesome tool chest of other software development tools and techniques at your disposal. Yeah, but there's this one thing that yeah, that's my thing, and I'm going to use it for everything, uh-huh. um, even if you know there are better tools for the job. Again, it could be a technology, it could be a language, it could be a technique that you've used, yeah, a pattern, you a template, or... right? Um, but that, and it may have worked in the past. It might have worked, you know, multiple times in the past. It, but it might not be the best tool for what you're trying, the problem you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So. That's another one that I think is really interesting. I see that a lot. I know that I committed that one often when I was younger. Um, I don't think I do it as much as I used to. And I think that's only because I've sort of narrowed down the kind of work that I do. I have a, I have a set of problems that I am trying to solve. Uh-huh. If it's a problem that I don't know how to solve, or if it's not my thing, air quotes around thing, Mm-hmm. I probably don't have a tool for it, and I know that it's not a project that I should really be taking on. Um, so anyway, that, that's the golden hammer one. Um, yeah. The solution, I think, for that one, it's, it's not as clear, uh, but I think it's just you need to always be learning. That's something that we have um, talked about in episodes in the past. And just yeah. constantly be adding new tools, you know, uh, to your tool chest, so to speak. You know, just uh, uh, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, there's a couple ways to answer this. From the technical side, I, I think you're spot on. Where, yeah, keep learning, um, learn new tools, new patterns, new 
ways. It it's good to settle in on, you know, if you are solving a consistent set of problems, that's great for one. Um, and two, and it goes along with our specialization conversation. Um, but that lets you develop these tools, patterns, templates to to repeat and to you know more quickly and efficiently solve those same problems, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's more a problem when like you're you're trying to force it, right? If you if you all you have is a hammer, and it's not that everything looks like a nail; it's that even when something comes along that's not a nail, you still try to smash it in place. So right. Yeah, like you screw the comes in place. Or right. a, a glass window pane comes in place. Uh, <laughs> that's really not going to work very well, right? Right. Um, yeah. It's when you're trying to, to force it uh, into something that it shouldn't be or there, you know, there are better tools for that job. Um, mm-hmm. And the only way to counter that, there are two ways. One way is to learn new tools (laughs) have a broader skill set tool set whatever you want to call it for that same problem space um so a common example i see i the most common complaint i see for people coming into like javascript and sweet script is that they just want it to be object oriented they want it i should say class oriented they want it to look like what they've come from you know Almost all training programs teach object-oriented programming, class-oriented programming. .NET uh, and Java are two major languages that people get to SweetScript through, and they just want, oh, they want that class keyword so bad. They just need class-oriented programming. Well, not every system perfectly maps to a class-oriented system. It's just not, there are multiple paradigms that you can use and should be using to build these complex systems. So learn more of them. Stop relying on this, the golden class keyword so much. Um, Not everything can be modeled as a noun or a verb perfectly. Well, oh, I said there were two, right? Uh, so the one way is to learn more and start getting a broader tool set. Uh, the other, the other way is maybe not up to the developer, but more on the business side of things. And again, along our, our specialization conversation, um, if all you have are hammers and all you want to be are hammers, that's great. The world needs hammers. Keep making a better hammer. But when a screw comes along or a glass window pane, uh, you have to say no. And you say, we don't do that. There are other people better fits. You bring us a nail, we will hammer it right away. But <laughs> uh, so the other way is to say no and to stop working with things that aren't nails. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think to sort of tack onto that just a little bit, um, when you do see opportunities come along consistently that aren't that are not a good fit for you. And this kind of goes off on a little bit of a tangent here because it's not so much an anti-pattern. We're really talking about specialization, but you know, eventually when you start seeing the same problem over and over and over again, it's probably an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And this sort of flies in the face of our specialization 
you know, discussion and our recommendation, but if you are looking for something to specialize in and you're seeing the same problem over and over and over again, there's an opportunity, potentially mm -hmm. an opportunity to specialize in solving that problem. Right. It doesn't mean that now all of a sudden you do this and you do that. Maybe you give one up to do the other or you transition or whatever. But um, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I know throughout my career, I have seen that time and time again, where there'll be like a flurry of, um, you know, opportunities that'll come at me that I'm not prepared to deal with. And and some of them you just give up, you know, like, no, it's not my thing. Other right. ones, you know, it might be interesting. It might pique your curiosity and kind of send your, your path, your career or your business in that different direction. So, right. Again, not so much an anti-pattern there, but um, just an observation that where there are problems, there are opportunities. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, definitely. The, if you're talking about Golden Hammer on the, the technical level, um, the the approach is the opposite if you're talking about it on the business level. <laughs> on the business level, that's an opportunity to focus in and maybe make a bunch of money. On the technical level, we want to generalize. We want more tools, not not more like not. We don't want to sharpen our hammer all of a sudden. <laughs> right, and I think. You know, to your point there, when you're running into these situations where you're presented with a problem and you're, you do not have a tool available to you to solve that problem, and you see that happen time and time again, then, or maybe you're like, okay, well, the heck with it. I'm just going to use my golden hammer to try to drive this uh, screw into yeah. the wood. <laughs> you do, you get the job done, but don't stop there. You know, maybe you then say, okay, I'm going to do this now, but I'm going to look and see if there isn't a better tool to finish this job off. I think a little bit of research there too might prevent you from falling into that trap of using the wrong tool for the job. Mm -hmm. And like in the sweet script space, you know, we've both talked about this before. There are some modules that I think even you haven't really messed around with too much. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and it's like, I, I wonder sometimes like, huh, and I'll dig into them a little bit to see like, is there something in there that I might need, should be using? Like yeah. there's a reason those modules are there. So. Yeah, you just have to build that, those habits of continual learning. I think that's critical to success as any career but especially software development yep so do you have another anti-pattern uh yeah i was going to talk about this as part of source control i mentioned that repository um with all the clients on the same repository and the same branch, like all the code you've ever written in one single branch. Um, don't do that either. Better, you, you can leverage source control for much better separation of concerns, similarly to what you would do in a well-designed software system. You, you wanna separate um, responsibilities as much as possible so that you can work on them in isolation without affecting other modules or classes or whatever what have you uh, you can do the same thing with source control by separating into repositories separating those repositories into branches um, and just developing a sound workflow for first isolating code to 
to separate developers, make sure that they're not constantly stepping on each other, um, and then reintegrating it back and, and releasing it. Um, so avoiding sort of that single stream of development. Right? Just as much as we want to separate the concerns in our software system, we want to separate concerns in our source control system as well. Yeah. Um, and then let's see, other ones. Real quick anti-pattern, I think that I see a lot. I, I, I hesitate to call it an anti-pattern because I understand why people do it. And it's not like broken necessarily or anything, but I see a lot of projects get organized. They organize the script, uh, the code by script type. So like all the user events are together and all the restlets are together and all the scheduled scripts are together. And I get that, but it's just very weird to me. Like you almost never when you get a feature request or a bug or something like that, like your users, your clients aren't writing like, hey, there's a problem in this user event. Please go fix it. <laughs> They're saying, hey, our automatic invoicing is, is broken. Can you fix that? And so if you're new to a project or if you work for a partner and you're constantly jumping around between clients, um, whatever it might be, and you jump into a project or an account and everything's organized by script type, well, where the hell is all the automated invoicing stuff? And how do you go about finding that? Um, so I, it's never made a lot of sense to me why people organize by script type when that's never how you either, that's never how you design a project, that's never how you org organize like the project management. You know, you, you talk about features and you talk about functionality, don't talk about script types at that at that level. So I don't know why projects get organized that way. It's very strange to me. Yeah, I've seen that one too. And it it's it actually is more difficult to work on a project it's where that is difficult. the case. Yeah. You're especially like to, especially to inherit it. Especially to inherit one. Right. Because you don't know. But, now you have no clue what's all involved without right. a like deep manual investigation of the code and just like walking through the whole process chain, yeah. which you may not even be aware of. So it's at times impossible. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. But on that comment, like you said, the stuff that you're not even aware of, and it would be more potentially anyway, more of a clue to you if you're like looking and if the code was organized by project and not mm -hmm. by type, then you can see that, oh, there's a restlet that made that up or a user event script that's involved, you know, because they're grouped logically that way. Yeah, I can go and, into the, the automated invoicing folder and I can see, oh, there's a, there's a MapReduce. There's also mm -hmm. two user events. There's a client script. Like, right. You can see right there all the entry points into this, this logical system. Um, and hopefully beyond that, the business logic is extracted out of those entry points. <laughs> right. At a certain point, this becomes as... A software design problem but in general I, I it just doesn't make sense to me to organize by script type because if you're designing well um you're going to have multiple custom modules for that reason like separating concerns and pulling logic out into their own modules 
those aren't entry point modules. So where do those live? Yeah, that's so it's very strange, too. very fast. Right. Um, I'm glad that you brought that one up because I have seen it before, and I thought it was just me being, you know, like nitpicky about it. Like, you know, why would you do this? Or more importantly, why wouldn't you go the other way, where you're organizing mm -hmm. the files based on again like a function or a, a project where they it's very clear all the files are side by side i have one place to go to see what's going on mm -hmm. you know what what are the players in this like again like, like you said there's a map reduce script there's a restlet there's a user event script you know and and granted that can get a little overwhelming too um but at least you've got a fighting chance at debugging something if all the basically if all the code is in one place so yeah i mean at the very least you have you know where to start because mm -hmm. again you you know there's there's a problem in the, when you're presented with a bug or a new feature you know you're enhancing something that already exists you know you're enhancing a certain part of the application that's probably described as you know some you know feature xyz and if you're right. organized by feature XYZ, you at least know everything related to that is where it is. Right. And you brought up a good point earlier where when a user has a problem with something, they're going to refer to it by that feature, <clears throat> not by, like you said, like, hey, the restlet is failing or right, some They're not going to know that. Right. How would they know that? They shouldn't have to know that. That's exactly right. Yep. So that's a really good segue, I think, into another uh, anti-pattern that I call a Swiss army knife. I've heard it referred to as the God objects. And mm. this is code mm. that tries to do too much. This kind of leads back to the whole modularity thing. But, you know, you get this, this script or whatever it happens to be that, you know, it, it's essentially is a massive library of uh, a hodgepodge of functionality oh. that's thrown together. Mm. And the worst part of that too is when you either don't know what is dependent upon that thing or it has too many dependents, not dependencies, but things that are dependent upon it, mm -hmm. um, which makes it even more frightening because, you know, if you need to go in there and make a change, you also have to look and see what is dependent upon that and what's going to break. Um, the solution is just to write much more modular code. And I think that goes back to what you were saying a little bit about this, how to organize your code. Like, even if you are going to put the files together <laughs> or, you know, organize your code better, mm -hmm. you also need to be thinking about it in terms of modularity. Are you building these Swiss Army knives that might be real convenient for you right now, but oh boy. Uh, they might not. They might not be. You might be cursing yourself in the future mm -hmm. for having made that decision. So I'm sure you've yeah. seen that one. What, are, oh, what yeah. are your thoughts on that one? It's a massive code smell. That's mm -hmm. my thought. Uh, yes, I've seen this a lot where it's either, either the entry points themselves are just crammed full of all the logic and it's, you know, on these very complex projects. Uh, where it, it becomes impossible to follow the logic. It does a whole bunch of things. There's a whole bunch of problems with, with doing this sort of thing. Um, 
or even if they do extract um, the code, say, into the logic, say, into like a library, a single library module. Um, it, it's just super unwieldy. <laughs> it causes all kinds of problems. It's impossible. The longer it gets, the larger it gets, the more work it does. The harder it is to follow, the harder it is to understand, the harder it is to maintain because you don't know where all the interconnectedness is. Um, if, if it's, I, I, so great example, very early in my, probably six months into my sweet script career, I was working on, we had a client whose sales order, it, when they, um, let's see, when they committed a line on a sales order, it would take five minutes. So not even to save the record, but to commit the line. <laughs> um, they were a heavy, let's see, uh, uh, they were a cell phone reseller, like a mobile phone reseller. And so they had a ton of really complicated inventory processes um, that was all custom built. And so all obviously a lot of that logic for checking inventory and managing it and updating it and that sort of stuff was relegated to this single transaction library script. And this single library was like 24,000 lines. And it's where all of the logic for all of the inventory management was. And it was wild. <laughs> it took us four or five months to untangle it into a sane architecture. Um, Anyway, so that's the type of thing we're talking about is where you take all this seemingly, maybe seemingly, seemingly related <laughs> logic, stuffing it into one place. Yeah. And so yep. what that does is a bunch of things, like I already mentioned, you can't follow it. You don't know, you don't, it's hard to know what is using it, what's touching it. You can't change it safely. Um, if you're not, you can't, Multiple developers can't work on it because it's all in the same file. And so they can't work on it at the same time in the same environment, or they'll constantly be overriding each other's changes. Um, you have got to decompose your problems into very small pieces, modules, if you will, and, and arrange those, move them around, reuse them. You should not have monolithic architectures like that or these big God objects, if you will. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, what we're talking about here is modular code. And, um, right. you know, one of the reasons for Separation that... Separation of concerns. I think the way that you end up with these God objects is you take don't repeat yourself too far. Right. You're like hoping it's misunderstood all the time. It does. And I, I will admit I've been guilty of that myself. I recognize when I do it and then I start quickly backing myself out of what uh, I was about to do. Yeah. But it is, it's a really, I think a challenging thing uh, for developers to deal with because you're told, you know, don't repeat yourself, you know, create a module for this, create a common function for that, a library, whatever, but you can definitely take it too far. And the end result is what we're talking about right now. These mm -hmm. the God objects, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they're just as bad. I'd rather see code 
repeated if it's going to make the code itself, the bigger body of code, more clear and easier to maintain. Um, I, and I've, I think in the past two or three years, I've really started to look at that uh, more closely when I'm about to do something where I'm like, oh, I'm doing this over here too. I'll just create, regardless whether it's Squeed Script or not, I'll create a module or a function to handle that and I'll call it from all these places. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you know that you've headed down the wrong path when you're like, okay, yeah, that it's called a little bit different. I, it's something different about it when I call it from over here. So I'm just going to tack like another parameter on, or whatever. Oh, you yeah. quickly yeah. realize that it's you're, you, yeah, you're not repeating yourself, but you, you've created a God object. It's, it's yeah. worse than that. It's more complex. Um, so anyway, I that is a really interesting problem, I think, and. I don't think there's a clear uh, solution to taking don't repeat yourself too far other than try to recognize when you're doing it. Well, you know. the first step, I would say, I've actually written about this fairly recently, so it's, it's sort of top of mind for me. If you go back, so don't repeat yourself comes from Pragmatic Programmer, a 20-year-old... Uh, software engineering book, amazing book, mm -hmm. excellent book for you career software developers out there. If you have not read Pragmatic Programmer, do so right now. <laughs> yeah. um, that's where it comes from. Uh, and oftentimes it gets presented, don't repeat yourself, gets presented as you should not have any repetitive code in your code base. And that is not how it's written in pragmatic programmer don't repeat yourself yeah. says you should only have a single source of knowledge so any single piece of knowledge should have one source of truth you should not have multiple quote correct sources of knowledge within your code base so that is not don't have any lines of code that look the same <laughs> Um, those are very different, very, very different things. Yep. Now, there's certainly something to be said to, like, you don't want to repeat the same algorithm somewhere, but that's that's sort of what um, don't repeat yourself is saying, in that, say, the quote-unquote algorithm we're talking about here is, like, how does this company transform a sales order into an invoice? There's probably some business logic there, and there's... And thus, there's an algorithm there for, for how that happens. That algorithm, that logic should live in one place so that there's only one way, which is the correct way to change a sales order into an invoice. Um, but, and, and if you repeat that, if you like copy and paste that algorithm multiple places in your code, say you have multiple entry points that are doing that, maybe a user event and a MapReduce script, if you copy and paste it, then as soon as the algorithm changes, you now have to remember there's two places to do it. And that's a code smell. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what don't repeat yourself is trying to avoid. It is right. not trying to prevent you from making two lines that look the same. <laughs> um, right. Which is often how it gets presented instead. Uh, yep. I've written about this. I will link to... The, the book itself, I will link to a tweet from the authors of the book. I will link to my article about it uh, in case you don't believe me. Because <laughs> yeah, I do see I, a lot of pushback on this. 
uh, quite right. a lot. It's just a misunderstanding of what the don't repeat yourself, you know, advice was, was trying to provide the guidance that it was giving. And, you know, I've seen it in, I've not only seen it in other developers uh, code, I mentioned, I, I know I've started to do it myself and then I've gotten to the point now where I recognize it and I stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also seen it in commercial code for the source of that. And they're just, it's um, anyway. Right. Yeah. You, you can take anything too far. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All things in moderation. Um, there's another way to sort of counter this is to follow the solid principles of class-oriented programming, I would say, object-oriented programming, um, where the S in solid is single purpose. So your units of code, whatever those might be, should have a single purpose. Uh, so a line of code should be a single statement. A uh, function should have a single purpose. A module should have a single purpose. A class should have a single purpose. A script, like an entry point, should have a single purpose. Um, now, single purpose is a little bit uh, fuzzy. It's not very exact or precise. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's where the art of software design comes in is you, you need to draw your own boundaries somewhere on what single purpose means, but, uh, that's the way to counter this is to keep your, um, units of code, small, focused, very minimal cognitive load, um, like general guidelines I use for myself. Again, very inexact and fuzzy, but I don't have functions that are longer than 50 lines. I don't have modules that are longer than maybe 400 or 500 lines. Um, once something starts to get longer than that, it the problem needs to be re-examined and decomposed into smaller blocks. So if you find yourself writing 24,000 lines in a single <laughs> script, I suggest you reassess and start to break down your problems. Yeah, that's going again. Now you're going the other way too far, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're decomposing to the point of, okay, look at my nice giant, you know, <laughs> like you can just follow straight through in one script or you know, mm -hmm. one code base. Um, yeah, it just leads to all kinds of problems. If you're not separating right. concerns in your code base, uh, you have yeah. all kinds of technical debt. There's a balance there that I need. I think you need to strike, and it's not always easy to do. Um, there's no tried or true rule for it, I think. It just mm -hmm. comes from experience. I think it also comes from your coding style. I think some people naturally write modular code. Others avoid it at right. all costs. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think it's it goes back to something that you mentioned earlier in the episode where it's, you know, it happens often because somebody's in a rush, you know, they're not really thinking it through. They're just trying to get this task finished, yeah, add this new feature. Rush. They're permanently in rush mode. Right. And that's how you end up with these problems, it, you know, where you're not taking the time to think about 
the modularity or lack thereof of what you're doing, mm-hmm. of the code you're writing. So, yeah. So I didn't originally have this on my list, but you brought it up, um, I think. And I, 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 I would say that this is uh, somewhat unique to NetSuite development. Okay. It's, I, I'm going to call it over customization. You brought up that example of the, um, yeah. the cell phone company with mm-hmm. all the craziness going on and they're trying to essentially commit the line, which is frightening that it took five minutes just for that. Wild, um, just wild. And I have commiserated with you about a project that I've been working on for, um, it's a client that they have taken the art of customization, NetSuite customization to a level I have never seen before. Uh-oh. I don't, I'm just going to call it over customization. It is not, I don't think that's one that you're going to find on a list of anti-patterns anywhere. It's, I would say that it's the opposite of a best practice. And this is one of those topics that could be its own episode. We could probably, (laughs) I bet there's a million developers out there right now that are going, yeah, I've seen that before. Uh Um, I don't even know what to say about it other than I do think it is something that we run into as developers that's challenging. Um, I don't know what the fix is for it. It seems to me that once a, uh, a NetSuite uh, you know, customer has started to customize their instance and they take it to an extreme, it's very difficult to back out of that. And it's like a runaway train, I think. Like once they get on that, Mm-hmm. They just, okay, we're going to, wow, if you can customize this, you could probably customize that. And then let's, and we've got this other business rule. And now, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't customize NetSuite, but I guess what I'm getting at is I think you can take it too far mm-hmm. or you customize without thinking of the bigger consequence of what are the, what's the total impact going to be when you've customized all the things, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? It's, um, it's hard to do. We talked about this a little bit actually with uh, Adam. Yeah. Um, where there just seems, and I, I actually saw a post on the NetSuite subreddit, I think today or even maybe it was yesterday, but about this same sort of thing where they, they're just, you know, every business is unique and has, has custom processes. Um, but it seems like when, whenever, um, because NetSuite is so flexible and customizable, whenever someone implements it, they just, they don't want anything, they don't want to change their business in any way. They want NetSuite, they want to just completely change NetSuite to fit their business and the way they do it. Um, and there's no give on the business side. Like we don't, we're not going to adapt our business at all to work within like the NetSuite you know, best practices, basically. We just want to completely overhaul NetSuite to model our business instead. And once again, I think that's taking it way too far. You, like, NetSuite is built the way it is for good reasons. Uh, it does things the way it does to handle, you know, 80% of, of business cases. So if it's doing it slightly different than you do, there's probably a good reason for that. And probably your business would be just fine if you made a little bit of change uh, to work, to just work the way NetSuite does instead. 
um like there i think again there's a balance to be struck um mm -hmm. if if you want an erp to exactly match your custom business processes then build your own erp <laughs> just build your own hire developers to build your own it'll be probably the same cost um yeah it just doesn't um again i think it's 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 taking it too far like you said i i have one i've had one client in the past basically who actually uh of all systems they migrated from filemaker uh to netsuite <laughs> and like a huge majority of their customization work went towards making NetSuite look like FileMaker so that like all the reports were the same. Like they have all yeah. these suitelets for custom reports. Uh, I'm overblowing it a little bit, but that's what a lot of the um, uh, like customization requests were like, well, file, FileMaker could do this. Why, why doesn't NetSuite do this? Well, it doesn't need to, or it does it this different way that you don't quite expect. And instead of retraining, relearning, uh, we just, no, let's rebuild NetSuite instead. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe you've made a bad choice then, yeah. yeah. Why did you switch off of FileMaker then, if you just wanted to rebuild it? Um, yeah. So, so I've got two, there's, you two, know, yep, the two quick comments on that. So one, I think when you've got a client who is coming from a system like NetSuite, or I mean, from FileMaker, I'm sorry, or they've, they're coming from some highly customized system that they've been running on for years, they, they kind of get that customization, like, you know, addiction, if you will, mm -hmm. like, well, we can change that, we can change this. And in some systems, uh, FileMaker is a good example. It's sometimes very easy to very quickly go in and make a change to something and let's customize a little bit further. You know, you're when you build a solution in something like FileMaker, you're starting with a clean slate usually. So it is customized to that business. Whereas now, you know, that company's come into NetSuite, it's, there's structure already there. And so um, I think it's, I guess what I'm getting at is I think that some clients are more likely to want to customize everything than others. Um, the other thing that I was going to add is I think what's there's what 22,000 companies running on NetSuite right now. It might be more than that. It might be 24,000. I 24 don't remember. 24 is the latest I heard. So think about that for a moment. You know, I'm sure that most of those clients have some customization, but for the most part, they probably all handle certain things the same way. You know, like they're following NetSuite's way of doing something because it clearly is a best practice that works for the majority of those companies. I, I guess what I'm getting at is if you think that there's something that needs to be customized for your business, you really need to stop and think about that. You know, like maybe there's a reason that the other companies are able to get away with using whatever function you think you need to customize or just throw out and build mm -hmm. from scratch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, again, I'm going to call this the over customization anti-pattern. I do think it's somewhat unique to NetSuite, but I'm sure you talk to somebody that's doing development on other ERPs or you talk to somebody, you know, working in um, Salesforce or whatever, I'm sure that they see it too. Um, 
think a lot of developers don't complain about it because you know part of our job is customizing NetSuite. But uh, you know, if you're putting the interests of your customers first, and you see that they're about to customize something that maybe really doesn't need to be customized, you're not really doing them a service by just kind of you know mm-hmm. not bringing up the fact that oh maybe you don't really need this. Yeah. So. And it does become a problem. I mean, your example is a perfect one that five minutes on a line item, I've seen some, some, uh, you know, terrible performance, but I, that one's, that's horrible. <laughs> it, it was a nightmare, an absolute nightmare to untangle. Yeah, I bet. Well, that was the last one I had. And, I, and again, that wasn't even one I had on my list. Um, do you have any other anti-patterns to I talk about? I have one more. We're getting long in the tooth here, but I do have one more that I like to call high wire releasing. And this is where, so we are recording this right now in late, very late December, 2020. And I guarantee you that everyone who's working in the NetSuite space right now is is uh, sprinting towards a January 1 go live. <laughs> what a terrible time to release software. <laughs> um, there seems to be this really like common pattern. I will call it an anti-pattern, but it's a very common habit in this space to want to release new code and new customizations on the openings or closing of fiscal periods. So say the first of the year, the fiscal year, the first of the month, you know, or uh, the first of the quarter. In any first, we love to, for some reason, we we have convinced ourselves that it's easier for somebody uh, if we release new stuff on the first. Or alternatively on Fridays, uh, both are just terrible, terrible, terrible times to release new stuff. <laughs> um, if you're releasing, especially like accounting customizations, during a period close, especially the end of the year, uh, guess who's not available? The accounting team. <laughs> They're busy closing the books on the previous period. Um, and so... I don't know how we've we've convinced ourselves that this is a good idea that like the beginning of the month or the end of the month are good times to release customizations of financial software because they're not. Uh, it's always bad, and Fridays are also bad. If anything goes wrong or you need any changes, and you release on Friday, something goes wrong. Guess when you're working to fix it? On a Saturday. <laughs> uh, that's not a great time to be working. Uh, release your code on Mondays uh, or Tuesdays or sometime where it's like normally expected that you'll be working and available and so will the people you're releasing the customizations for. Yeah. So I like to put uh, blackout dates on the basically the 28th through about the 7th. Um, like release your code early in the week in the middle of the months, not on holidays, not on weekends. Uh, it, every, it will be easier for everyone. Problems will get resolved much faster if everyone is already there and available to work and focus on the release, as opposed to trying to 
uh, cram it in while some other major important operation like closing your books is going on. So I think that one of the reasons you see those sort of artificial deadlines that are set based on a like a financial period, like the end of one, beginning of another, is that I think there's this perception that there's going to be a clear line in the sand that when we cut over to NetSuite on January 1. So mm -hmm. if something happened in like the prior year, you know, to look back at the old system, otherwise look in NetSuite. I, that's, I'm not saying that's right, but I think that's what the perception is. I, I, I totally agree with you. I know that's what the perception is. Uh, the reality is so far from that, at least in my experience, is. that that cutover yeah. is never, ever, ever clean. Even even if they didn't trans transition systems, it almost always takes, like especially for large companies, it takes days or weeks to close the books. Yeah. It's not like yeah. this magic click a button and everything works in any system. Right. And it's not necessary anyway. I mean, even if you do like, you know, if you're doing a cutover from one system to the other, you know, coming from another system to NetSuite and you're just, again, you're just set on, we, we did a January one cutover because it was nice and quote unquote clean, you know, it's really not necessarily necessary to tie that to the, the calendar mm -hmm. as to when you did the cutover. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to explain. And I think that's one of the reasons why people get confused about it. I think people get, they make promises based on those dates. Oh, they don't the want to look bad. The other thing I would add, and I don't know if you would agree with this one, is with regards to like when to roll code out. I mean, I totally agree with you. Fridays are terrible. Mm -hmm. Early Monday mornings are just as bad <laughs> for some reasons. Um, uh, I would also recommend that you try to release code either well before or after business hours, depending on what it is you're releasing. If it's something that is, I think, sort of, um, I'm not even sure how to describe it. If it's something that you're not going to need a user to immediately test and verify that what you did worked, if it is something that is almost more operational, that you think might take a while or that could go terribly wrong and you need to roll back before anybody even knew that even tried to release it, do it after hours, do it at some funky time of the day or night, you know, early morning, whatever. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is putting something into production at like eight o'clock on a Monday morning when the business opens at 8.30 is also, I think, problematic, right? If you need users to test your stuff, have them come in early that day or stay late that night. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people release code. I'm not now talking specifically about NetSuite, but just they put something into production, you know, at the peak time of the day where business has a, a flood of calls coming in every day. It's just, it's just not wise to make that change at that time. So, yeah, I'm going to be uh, disagreeable a little bit here. Uh, I, I agree with you. You should absolutely find like, this is a collaboration with your clients, right? Like, right. You should absolutely find time windows that work for both of you to be minimally disruptive. Hopefully you are thoroughly, you know, testing and vetting all this, this stuff, especially, uh, there's a rabbit hole here. I'm going to try to avoid stepping in, but, um, you know, hopefully you've, you're, let's assume you are thoroughly 
vetting all this stuff and doing smaller releases instead of like one massive huge release that eight months of development goes into um uh if you need your clients to 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 test you know right after you go live that's great i would say i would not advise putting these time windows outside of normal work hours because that's part of my i guess healthy workspace (laughs) the methodology or mindset like yeah no we we work during normal business hours and we go home with our families afterwards like everyone else uh so yeah if you need if something's if if something is potentially disruptive that's fine but collaborate with your clients and find a time window where both of you are sort of expecting that little bit of um lull i guess in business while we deploy some code and we need some people to check it out test it make sure it's running and then ramp back up to to normal operations but i would i mean i would not be putting those time windows outside of any normal business hours for anyone yeah i think you you know if you can avoid them absolutely you know you need you need the downtime you need some regularity with regards to your schedule and stuff but um if it is going to be potentially disruptive and i i go i agree with also what you said that if it's going to be potentially disruptive because it's of things that you are worried about, then maybe you're not really prepared to release that code anyway. Yeah, there's a different problem there, actually. <laughs> right. And that's the rabbit hole I'm trying to avoid stepping in. There are lots of strategies for making minimally disruptive deployments that I don't yeah. want to start talking about an hour and 20 minutes into this podcast episode. Yeah. Well, but, I think that is a good, a good way to end it, you know, and maybe we bring that up on another another episode uh, it's funny because i thought this episode was going to be a quick one it's our <laughs> seen my one. Notes. I, I think so um so yeah so yeah we probably should wrap it up uh, but it's been a good a good conversation i think and we've covered a lot so um so i guess should we wrap things up yeah do you have anything uh cool exciting to to wrap up with um, I have one thing. I have been reading a book, kind of a different kind of book. Uh, I would call it a self-help book, but it's maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, yeah, you know, I mentioned to you before that I'm all about minimalism and simplifying, and I'm really trying to apply those principles to my business. And there's a book that I'm reading right now called Release, uh, Create a Clutter-Free and Soul-Driven Life. Um, I'm probably three or four chapters into it. And one of the things, one of the reasons that I've started to read it is that it struck a chord with me early on in the book. It's okay to let things go that aren't physical. <laughs> you know, we've had this whole decluttering uh, craze that goes on these days. And uh, I think it can apply just as much to your business as anything else. And so I've got all these projects that I've had lined up, you know, oh, I'll work on this someday and I'll work on that someday. And after reading some of the early chapters of this book, I've been like, you know what? Nope, it's gone. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, So that's why the book resonated with me. It feels good, doesn't it? It does. It feels so good to say no. (laughs) Right. 
let somebody else do it. You know, if it's such a great idea, uh, you know, if it was really something I felt passionate about, I would already be you doing would have it. Done it. If, right. Or started it. And, and if it's been on my list forever, I'm never going to get to it. So you yeah. know what? I'm going to like let myself go, you know, um, just yeah. declutter. Yeah, that's part of uh, getting things done as well, the getting things done system that I've been using forever is if, if something like comes up on your to-do list multiple times and you always skip it or don't do it, then throw it away, like delete it, get rid of it. Cause you're not, you're clearly not going to do it. You haven't, you haven't made it a priority. So just get rid of it. It's just there. It's just a distraction. It's clutter. So what about you? What's your cool thing? Um, I feel like I always turn this into like, what's Eric reading right now? But I am going to do that anyway. I'm going to continue to do that. I am rereading um, How to Measure Anything. It's uh, a book by a statistics researcher. Um, and it, it's about measuring the intangibles in business. Uh, so a lot of times we, we think... We think things are way harder to measure than they actually are. And we also fundamentally misunderstand what measuring is or means. Um, measuring is not eliminating uncertainty. It's just reducing uncertainty. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating book that has just a lot of uh, shortcuts, if you will, like statistical shortcuts for how to measure things that are seemingly immeasurable. Like how do you measure the impact of employee engagement on a team or, or something like that, that these things that seem really ethereal or really intangible are actually very, very measurable um, in the sense that you can get a very, well, you can't get an exact number, like you're not going to be able to equate to measure an exact number of a particular employee's engagement and then tie that to a very specific dollar amount or something, something like that. Measurement is just about reducing uncertainty and narrowing ranges, like viable ranges of, of things so that you can compare against other you know, metrics or whatever you might be doing so that you can make decisions. Um, grounded, sensible decisions. Anyway, it's a very fascinating read that uh, despite being like very research heavy, is very entertaining and very practical as well. So, I was just going to say, it how to measure like, anything. It sounds like something that would apply very much uh, to the work that you're, uh, you're looking to do you yes, know, with helping absolutely. teams. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, that's exactly why I'm rereading it now, so I can bring some of that stuff to bear for the decisions that you make as you build out a, a sweet script practice. Yeah. So you're not going to be counting lines of code? No. no <laughs> Good. Plus, there are tools that do that for you. <laughs> right. Not that you want to be doing it anyway. <laughs> but I think right, that's it. Well, that's all I have. This has been uh, a very interesting episode. I have to say it's been, I think, one of my favorites because we covered so much and things that, you know, 
just I know that we're not alone in running into these. So it's we might be alone in still listening to this episode, though. <laughs> yeah, we're almost true. ninety minutes in. Yeah. Well, so if, if you're, you're still you... here, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it. All right. On that note, let's wrap it up. All right. Well, join us again next time for more sweet script stories, probably shorter ones. <laughs> bye bye.